Um, Lord, thank you for the way that you have brought your grace to us. Um, thank you for everybody that's here. It means so much. Bill and Sandra and, and Caroline, Christopher. It's just a gift. And I want to say thank you. Ask right now that you would soften our hearts and open up our hearts to know and understand you, your word, what it means to follow you. Uh, please give your grace and favor in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, those watching online, thank you for, for uh, uh, hopping on. Please stay on. Don't, don't pop off. Uh, stay on. What's going to happen today is so critically important. So let's talk about crisis team and what this whole idea is and how it applies to us and how we live this thing out. So I want to begin by saying this. Uh, this is a reference written by the Apostle Paul about AD 64. Maybe it's late as AD 65. He said this by common confession. Great is the mystery of godliness. And then he describes Jesus. He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but according to Paul, godliness is a bit of a mystery. Okay, it's something that's that uh, you can't quite you can't quite define it exactly for what it for what it is. Um, Bill, in your your journeys, maybe you met people that think if you're godly, you have your quiet time. That's what you do. It's all about the quiet time. Someone else is, well, if you're really godly, you don't say swear words. That's, boy, if you can just control the tongue, you're a godly man, godly woman. You know, there's, there's, we all have our opinions, typically, because we're reacting to childhood stuff, on what we think godly, godliness is. Paul says it's a mystery. When God takes a hold of a man's heart, when God gets a hold of a woman's heart and makes them like Jesus, it's a mystery. Okay? And we need to be careful to not try to get a copyright or a formula on that so that we can start comparing. Well, you didn't have your quiet time. Bless your heart. You're not that godly. I did. So I'm somehow more connected than you. I'm dialed in and you're not or something. So um, remember the mystery. And I'm so glad there's a mystery. I'm so glad that these things are beyond us and we can't control them. Okay, so let's dig in here on some things about, about self-concepts. This is Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Okay, and then he goes on to say, and who do you yourself say that I am? Real quick, because I need, I need to interact with you guys. Why would Jesus ask that question? Who do people say that I am? Why would he do that? And then he gets it like, well, who do you say that I am? Why is he doing that? Why do you think? He's making them think. Making them think, absolutely. What else? He's making a point. Making a point, meaning what? What's the point? That those that are discerning from the flesh versus from the spirit, it will be revealed. Okay, yeah, he mentions that in Matthew 16. Yeah, Peter gets it. Yeah, he's the one guy in the youth group that gets it, which is really cool. What else? Joe? It's, it's the Father who reveals who the Son is. Sounds like we're getting at a mystery, right? So, so what I want you to appreciate, okay, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, if I claim to be a follower of Jesus, 
Do I really know who he is? Do I know him? Do I honestly know him? Or uh, am I caught up in religious rituals, religious disciplines, because I just have grown up in church? Do you literally have an intimate and amazing relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know him? I think it's interesting in Luke's, uh, Luke 9. And by the way, there's two separate occasions when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And then he repeats it again. Who do people say that I am? In Luke 9, it says that he was alone. He was alone. And he gets up off his knees. Can you see the Gethsemane scene? He's all alone praying. You know, here he is again. He's all alone praying. And he gets up and he turns around and he says to the guys, Hey, who do people say that I am? Right after having an incredibly intimate conversation with his father in prayer. So fascinating. So I'm wanting to set the scene. Today's going to be an introduction. Um, All right, look at those photographs. Faces. Give me some reaction. Is there somebody on there you don't want to be friends with? What do you think? Third from the top right. Third from the top right? That girl looks mean. The middle girl on the top right is extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. She's probably a Russian assassin, by the way. I just, just feel it. I just feel it. So, anybody else? The, the, the guy, top row, fourth, the fourth guy? Yeah. Probably an alcoholic. Look at that guy. That's what alcoholics look like. He just, I just know it. So. He's probably a pastor. He's probably, he's probably a pastor. And he just left a deacon's meeting and they, they hate him. And, uh, Lisa, we, she and I are experiencing uh, right now. We're having trauma reactions. I'm sorry. So anybody else? Is there anybody like, oh, they're so nice. I want to be friends with them. Anybody see that? Have that reaction? Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, we have no idea what these people are like, do we? We absolutely are clueless if they're good, bad, kind, sweet, mean. We have no idea at all. Uh, I think, and I think if I needed somebody to stand up for me, if I need a friend who's going to go to the bat for me, I think the fourth guy from the. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or what about the Muslim-looking dude? You know, I, I bet he's got a sword. I mean, he would be—he'd be good. He could fight for us. So, all right, let's dig in. Uh, uh, I don't want to to make you go. Oh, oh boy, here goes Chris and his stupid medical works. Okay, Just bear with me. It's not that too painful. But um, this zone right here is absolutely critical, right? This is called the superior temporal sulcus. The sulcus is where the noodle part of the brain folds down, okay? The, the crack, the sulcus, the bumpy up is the gyrus. This is called the occipital face area, and that's the fusiform face area. Guess what? That's the zone of the brain. By the way, it's right behind my right ear here. That's a zone in the brain that lets us see a face, all right? And when you add the superior temporal sulcus function, it's not only I can see your face, I can read what you're saying out of your mouth. That's where I do language. And I can experience the intimacy of communication with another person by reading their face, 
hearing the words, seeing the mouth move, and I communicate, all right? It's the part of the brain where we anchor in and do relationships with eye contact. We recognize a face. Now, if that zone of the brain right back here is damaged with lesions, uh, an auto accident, you know, four-wheeler accident, whatever your stuff happens, uh, you begin to become face blind. Face blind, a medical psychiatric condition known as prosopognosia, which literally means no knowledge of a face. You can't recognize the face. Even though you can get the body and maybe some of the outline of the head, like, you know, oh, I think I know who you are, but remind me of who you are again. It's a real medical condition. So we are wired for relationships, okay? I want you to lock that down. Let's talk about um, our culture, the modern uh, perception of self. It's called monad, monadism, which means one, oneness, monadism. And it goes like this. When you are monadic, your sense of self, it means you're the individual, your life is private, and I am me. You have this very individualistic, private, isolated sense of yourself. As a result of that, my tendency is to see myself through the eyes of people who see me. So in other words, I am you seeing me. So if my friend Dale goes, gosh, I really like Chris, I'm going to read that on his face and in his eyes and his words, and I'm going to feel that, that Dale is safe. And I can have a good friendship with him as I'm reading his face, his words, his expressions. I derive worth how he looks at me. Now, if I get a scowly face, frowny face from, from Jenna, I'm going to go, uh-oh, we got a problem, and she doesn't like me, which is going to want to make me pull back. Why? Because I don't want to get hurt. I don't want the sting of rejection. It's normal human interaction. So modern Western sense of self, I am me, and I am the version of me that I think you see. All right, makes sense? Um, therefore, for many people, not all, but for many, the physical body or the outward persona is what's more important than the actual solar spirit. Books with covers are always judged. <laughs> Books with covers are always judged. And we all have a persona, right? You see a dude that walks in and he's got uh, a black leather vest and he's got a do-rag on and he's got big black boots and chaps and on the back of his leather vest it says Harley Davidson. You know, we're going to judge that book by its cover and we're going to say, that's a tough dude. He's probably got a Harley and he's putting off the air of toughness. That's a persona, Right. Now, it could be the biggest, softest teddy bear in the bunch, right? Take Alan, for example. Big, big, do, you know, like Arnold, the Terminator. And you look at his Jeep and you go like, whoa, that is one big, tough guy. But Serena, his daughter, said, no, no, he's just a teddy bear. He is a big, softy. That's all it is. So we all have personas. What's that? <laughs> and then, and then he'll go, I'll be back. He'll be back, yeah. Um, so I am me, I'm a very individualized person, and even though I think that way, I'm still deriving my worth from how you see me. All right, does anybody know who this is? That's not fair. 
I hunted for a hard question all week long. Then I get to ask it. So, but seriously, anybody know who she is? Okay. So, January 16th, 2011, Instagram user Jennifer Lee was the first person to ever caption her photo with the word selfie. Welcome to the first selfie on Instagram. There she is. So, um, some dude named Young Ming Wang invented the selfie stick in 2012, and it is a $174 million industry. Uh, some places, by the way, ban selfie sticks. It's against the law to have them. Um, what's the age of the average selfie taker? 23. 23-year-olds. 23.6-year-olds are the ones most likely to take the selfie. According to the Oxford Dictionary, selfie was the word of the year in 2013. And in that year, there was a 17,000% increase in people using the word selfie. Best place to take a selfie, Eiffel Tower. Women take more selfies than men. And as you would imagine... You ready for this? This is earth-shaking news. Duck lips or kissy lips are still popular in selfies today. Like, why? 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 It's another issue. All right, let's keep going here. So, all right. Um, let's talk about the ancient Mediterranean perception of self as opposed to the modern perception of self. This is fascinating. This is called dyadic as opposed to a monadic person. The dyadic person is the collective self. We are us. We need each other. I am defined by the group, not the individual, and not just my best friend, but by the whole group. So for example, in ancient Mediterranean culture, um, like the Old and New Testaments, um, is very different than our world. You can see dietism in China, Muslim countries, Saudi Arabia. Uh, In the ancient Near East, females, for example, are embedded into or have identity in specific males. So Eve is valued below Adam and finds identity in Adam. All right. A daughter, a son have an embedded identity in the father, in the grandfather, in the great grandfather. When you read the New Testament, well, our father Jacob had this well, and he drank from this well. Do you know how many generations it was until you get back to Jacob? A lot. And yet she's saying, well, our father Jacob. No, Jacob wasn't your dad. Maybe your great, 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 great down the line grandfather. Yeah, but not your dad. And yet they called Jacob dad. Her father. That's because they're dyadic. King groups are patriarchal. What does patriarchal mean? It's, it's driven by the eldest male, right? The grandfather, the eldest male. Parents arranged marriages for their kids, okay? Marriage was endogamous and not based on exogamous uh, relationships. You married inside the king group, okay? Inside your tribe, not outside your tribe, okay? You would not marry a foreigner. And it's not because you think uh, your skin color is better than their skin color. It has nothing to do with that. It's the preservation of the bloodline is why. All right. It's not because there's racism or hatred or something like that. 
Uh, married children set up patrilocal homes. What does that mean? Close to dad. Absolutely. Uh, marital problems were addressed by brothers and sisters and not by parents. Can you imagine? So if, if, uh, if me and Lisa get into it, I'm going to get my sister. She's going to get her brother. And my sisters and Lisa's brother are going to sit down with me and Lisa. We're going to work it out and how to have a better marriage. Okay. You wouldn't go to a counselor. You wouldn't go to a pastor. You wouldn't go to your, your uh, parents. You'd go to your siblings to help you with your marriage problems. Okay. Very, very different. Yeah, you uh, uh, in in a dyadic culture, if I offend Chris Howlett, the entire Howlett clan is now angry at me. Right. I've been I've offended the whole tribe, the whole group. All right. So let's do some summary work. I want you to make sure you get this. Dyadism, we're us, the collective sense of self. Monadism, I am me, the individual sense of self. All right. And then this uh, key idea. I want you to appreciate that there's a sense in which you need to be an individual. You need balance. There's times you need to be alone. And I get that. And we derive our, our worth based on Jesus Christ. I get that. But there's the other sense in which we are absolutely a part of the group. Um, by the way, Brian, um, you, you're dyadic. If there's 100 people in a, in a lineup room and they all got the same uniform on, are you guys a team? It's supposed to be. What? Is there, is there little flaws in the system? Come on, bro. Yeah. You're going to see dadism in our culture, in the military. You're going to see it in law enforcement and in uh, sports. Everybody's got the same helmet on, same jersey. They're all you know going for one goal. That's the dyadic personality. So law enforcement officer is going to do that. So you need both. And I don't want you to think that, ah, oh, if you get Christ esteem, you could care less about people. That's not the point. The point is you know how to handle people as opposed to being bound up uh, in unhealthy forms. So I want to walk through some indicators that can reveal we do struggle with self-esteem. Okay? I'm not saying this is you. I'm saying maybe it is. Maybe it's me. So if you're battling with self-esteem and it's getting destructive, it's damaged, I would say, number one, here's some, some giveaways that you battle with self-esteem. Number one, you're a chronic evaluator of people. You're all about judging. You can walk into a room and you've already assessed your opinions of other people. Number two, there's a tendency in you to seek out validation from other people. You want people to make you feel good about being you, and so you fish for that. You're looking to improve your self-worth and your group status, and so you, you, valid, you seek validation. You tend to have short-term unhealthy relationships. You tend to have short-term unhealthy relationships because... You habitually use people. People are objects to be used. And so therefore your relationships are, you kind of grab them, draw them near, use them for a bit. Things go sideways. They don't validate you. And now you get rid of them. And there's a cycle of drawing near, pushing back, drawing near, push back. And things are, are very short term, very unhealthy. You are driven by a fear of rejection. 
you really struggle with rejection. And this is critical. Your worth actually changes with the clothes that you wear. Your worth actually changes with the clothes that you wear. And I mean by that, your perception of worth changes by how you look, what you drive, where you live, and, and you literally can feel it inside of you when you look a certain way and you know your worth changes. Okay, that's a dead giveaway that there's some self-esteem problems. Uh, next, you have, uh, you experience a lot of irrational embarrassment. Irrational embarrassment. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, all of us, this is going to be silly, but I think it makes the point. We all have bad hair days, right? Okay. And let's say, for example, Justin, Sunny looks like a million bucks. She walks in, she's, she's just gorgeous, right? Just a typical day, right? She's got her muck boots on. She's ready to get on the track. You know, she's looking great. Okay. But there's one little thing with her hair right there. Little thing right there. And she goes nuts. She's 99.9% perfect. But that one little thing and she goes bonko and she goes, I can't go out in public like that. I've got a little hair right there. You know, like, what, what? That's irrational embarrassment. That's an irrational fixation on one little tiny thing, you know. Uh, that's what I'm talking about when there's a self-esteem problem. Irrational embarrassment, irrational fixation on a particular feature or, or issue of their bodies or clothes or anything. Uh, a couple more. You, you get this idea that it's almost like there's imaginary cameras that follow you wherever you go. Like somebody's always looking and, and assessing you and your work. Like there's floating cameras around you. And this is really, really an odd thing. Deep inside, your heart is so damaged, you tend to self-sabotage to make yourself feel normal. For example, um, it would be like saying, um, you know, I'm so stupid, I don't even know why I'm up here. I'm so dumb, why am I even up here? It's ridiculous. I shouldn't be here, I'm too stupid. I'm self-sabotaging if I say that. Right? And that reveals that there's something deeply broken inside of me and I have a very damaged and distorted view of myself. And that will always play out in relationships. Last one, uh, my perspective of self is dominated by the outside version of who I am, not the inside. Okay. And if we could be a bit transparent right now, we would all have to admit that's really safe <laughs> to do that, right? Make it all about the exterior, the persona, that outer sense of who we are. It's a whole lot safer than letting somebody in, in into the, to the wreckage. Make sense? Those are giveaways that there's some pretty serious problems. Summary. Self-esteem, really other esteem. I am seen by you. That's who I am. According to Genesis 1 to 3, we're designed to have a relationship with God and with people. It's all based on neuroanatomy, physiology, God's design of who we are. But it's also based on family culture. Some family cultures, some parents build healthy esteem in their kids. Some build very unstable, unhealthy self-esteem in their kids. And also socio-political culture can really derive, uh, help us derive our sense of worth. All right, you ready? Some scripture. All right, Christchurch, we're going to engage. Here we go. 
Matthew 6. Jesus is teaching. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they will be seen by people. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Luke 11, but the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you're full of robbery and wickedness. And Luke 16, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Wow. All right. I gave you an introduction. Framed it with some stuff about human anatomy, physiology, neuroanatomy. Kind of set the scene for this whole idea of who, who are we? Who is Jesus and how do we follow him? Give me a reaction to this. Uh, Matthew's, the, the three scriptures here. Is this from a culture that's dyadic or monadic? Pop quiz. Dyadic. Dyadic, absolutely. Philip's is on point. It's dyadic, all right? So, Philip, get inside the head of the Pharisee who wants to pray in a public place. How is he dressed? In robes. Gorgeous robes. Really expensive fabric, right? Beautiful. I mean, he looks great. And he's intentionally praying. Does he pray softly like this? You know, Lord, I just ask you to bless this. What kind of, what, is loud, all right? All right? So can you see it? The clothing, the volume in a high traffic area. And if he's a typical Jew, his hands are up and he's looking up and he's praying out loud, okay? Now remember, he's dyadic. What's going on in his head, Philip? Get inside that guy's head. What's happening? What's he thinking? The whole group. Yes. So a lot of kin group representation. Absolutely, Patch. What, what do you think, Philip? I think it's also self-promotion, too. How do you know that? Look at that last line. What does it say about him? What's that? Yes. And what's that last concept? Reward. The concept of reward. He got it. That's his payoff. That's his payoff. He got the pat on the back. Wow. Look great. Oh, man, your vocab's awesome. Way to pray. Good job. He got the pat on the back. Yeah. Remember, I am who you think I am. I define myself based on how you see me. So therefore, by wearing those clothes, praying out loud, fancy prayers, he gets his reward. People go, oh, that man must be so close to God. Did you hear what he was saying? And the way he pronounces Yahweh, that's awesome. <laughs> you know? Thank you for laughing. Our prayer language, you know, that we use, little codes that we use. So, What about the next one, Luke 11 or Luke 16? Dig into that. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how would you, um, what's the perspective here? What's, what's most important to these Pharisees in the last two texts in, in Luke? Outwards, the outward sense of self, right? Uh, physical appearance, uh, group status within the group. You want to be high status in the group patch like Paul. Paul does this. He says, hey, look, you want to play the game? You want to do the in-group game? I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew. I'm at the top. Paul can do this. I was more strict than anybody in my group. I was seeking honor. He absolutely did it. And then what does Paul do with all his status? Philippians 3, he trashes it, literally throws it on the, on the trash heap. And he's transvalued and says, I'm going to go with the opposite direction. So um, what is this? Try to get inside the head of the Pharisees here. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. There's a lot there. Yes, sir, Paul. It's kind of like when you see on social media all these people that give to the needy, but they're filming themselves giving. Yes. Uh, so they yes. get the reward. You know, oh, yeah. this is such a good guy. He's, he's giving stuff to the poor people. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember, remember Jesus' teaching on this when it was a time for a collection at the temple and everybody's walking up and they're dropping their money? Remember that? In the big coffers, right? And everybody's, oh, look how much that guy gave. Oh, look what they get. And then this poor widow, what does she give? Do you know what the mites are, Bill? Do you know how, on the denomination, do you know how low that is? Lower than a penny. It's actually lower than a penny. Little of nothing. Little of nothing. And Jesus says what? She gave more. Right. See? Well, I say it's also, they're not just trying to self-promote, like, look at me, I'm a giver. So it says they were lovers of money, so they're actually trying to justify the love of the money by giving to themselves, not even in front of other people, but to themselves. Say that again. That's so big, Stephen. So that says, the scripture says that they were lovers of money. And so instead of, yes, they're trying to impress other people to gain, you know, admiration and stuff from them. But they're also trying to justify in their own heads and in their own minds, their own hearts, that if I give, then maybe that offsets the love of money that I have or justifies the love of money that I have. Yes. Um, Stephen, it's extremely profound. Let me, let me add to that. Um, do you guys, have you heard of the word Corbin? Corbin? Corban? Do you remember this? Jesus is confronting the Pharisees, Bill, and he says, look, you guys tithe of mint and cumin and tiny little spices, you tithe of that. And you miss the weightier things of the law. And so the Pharisees had an idea to avoid being responsible for their parents. You know what they would do? They would say this entire garden is korban. It's dedicated to God. So I don't have to take from, from it and be my aging parents. Guess what they did? They were, they were literally greedy. But here's what's horrible. They were using religion to justify their greed. Did you catch that? They were using religion to justify their greed. Plant a big garden. 
you're, you're so selfish, you don't want to help your mom and dad out as they're aging. So, and the way to do that is just say, well, mom, dad, I'm sorry, I can't help you with the extra tomatoes this year because I've dedicated the whole thing to God. So you can't have help. Pharisees were doing that. Yeah. So Stephen, how low can we go? Using God, using religion as a point of leverage for our own greed? Wow. That's some messed up self-esteem. What's that, sir? (laughs) Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Jeremiah says that the human heart is rotten. It is corrupt. And in fact, in Hebrew, it says it's so sick, it can't be cured. That's the human heart. Jeremiah 17. So outside of Christ, it cannot be cured. Someone else, what does this have to do with self-esteem, other esteem, and getting, getting us ready to discover the journey of who Jesus is? Yes, Jeff. Well, in Pharisees, as you recognize teacher group of this culture, are not only propagating their position through these behaviors, they are transferring them down to people. Yes. And guaranteeing that this kind of behavior gets repeated by the people who observe it. Yes, Joe, that's critically important because the Pharisees believed that if you could act like them, everything would be better. Rome would leave. We'd get the land back. No longer in exile in our own land. How shameful is that? Roman occupation is gone. Just be like us. You go across heaven and earth to find a convert and make him twice the son of fellow people. It's not that they're greedy and want to keep their position. They do. They're Creating more people like them. Yes. Which creates that justification in the sight of man. I mean, if you've taught man how to do X, Y, and Z, then your behavior is reinforced by them saying, yeah, that's what you taught us. We're supposed to do that. And so, as a Pharisee, if they're enacting a sense of money being something really important and they're exercising that in front of men, then obviously the men that are learning from that are going to justify that. Well, of course, because that's what you taught us. So, it's just this vicious cycle. Continued influence, influence or influencee. As long as I teach you that this is important, I don't have any kind of guilt that I'm going to continue to do this bad behavior. That's good. Good. That's a very good patch. Let's push it just a little bit more. Um, if you, um, if you understand the dyadic personality. The collective mindset. Okay. Is there pressure to not deviate? You know what it means to deviate from the group? You get that, Charlie? Okay. What happens to a cop that goes rogue? They're gone. Yeah. Yeah. Got to be a team, right? Okay. You can't go rogue in a data culture. You can't deviate. Uh, What would happen... If a son or daughter said, uh, Dad, I can't stand you, and I'm sick of being in your presence. Give me my inheritance. I'm out of here. <laughs> right. And uh, what would a good Jewish father say? You're out of here. You've got two choices. The barn, because you're fixing to get whooping on the backside like you've never known, or you're gone. I'm not giving you the inheritance. What a shameful and, 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 and terrible son. 
that you would even ask that, right? So what a shocker that, that Jesus says that the man gave his son the inheritance. And the prodigal son wanders off to spend it in whatever he was going to spend it on, right? Andrew. Yeah, there's always a way. And that's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Absolutely. There's a way. Yes, yes. And there's always hope. It's fascinating that the doors kicked wide open on the people that wouldn't be considered acceptable in church. And the door is wide open. And Jesus says, you're angry because prostitutes, thieves, drunkards are getting in ahead of you. Absolutely. But there's hope. Um, what about the temple authorities, the Sadducees? Woo. By the way, it's the Sadducees that probably squeezed the trigger on the execution of Jesus. They're the ones that did that. This coming in, tipping over the tables, uh-uh, no more. We're done to that. Absolutely done. So, all right. Um, do you understand that, that in the Dadic world, you don't deviate? Can you get that? Okay, you don't deviate. If you can lock on to that idea, then I present something to you. Do you understand, uh, Brian, what a rogue Jesus was? Absolutely a rogue. To the tune that he would not comply with what the Pharisees wanted. He would not comply with what the uh, temple authorities wanted, the Sadducees. He wouldn't comply. He went rogue. And some scholars say uh, it really hit the fan over the Lord's Supper because he's saying... Instead of going to the temple to connect with God, you come to me. And this bread and this cup, me. So the altar is moved from the temple to Jesus himself. He is now the altar. Absolutely. He's it. Okay, anybody else on this intro on locking down this idea of who we are, how we see ourselves, how we see others? 
how it forms worth, setting it up for Jesus. And now he sees himself. Anybody question uh, anything? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. That's an example of being deviant. That that for us, we'd we'd say, like, well, yeah, way to put mom in her place. But but back then, it's, that would be considered very rude, very disrespectful. Absolutely. So, all right. Chris, I would say to um, I think you showed earlier. There's a balance between like monad. We obviously have our private walk with the Lord, and you'll get into this, but it's really more about what God values in you and what you do in valuing back toward the Lord. It's important in esteem. Um, but I also think to dyadism, too, we do have like a dyadic identity in the church, in the body of Christ. Yes. And um, if you're a follower, you want to see the church do well. And so if a brother or sister is struggling, that's where everyone is until you lift them up. Yes, yes, yes. Like, for example, Serena and, and Alan uh, uh, committed, committed to Christchurch, and they joined Christchurch, which is a, a huge thank you. Well, with that come obligations, you know, to love and accept and build them up, pray for them. And they for us, and Serena provided breakfast. So, yeah, absolutely, Philip, absolutely so. All right, anybody else a question about this stuff? All right. How's your self-esteem? When you look in the mirror, what do you see? (laughs) What do you see? What do you think of your body? Hmm? You know, we we can talk theory, right? But when you look in the mirror, what are you thinking? What's your self-talk? What's your opinion of other people? You know? When you're, when you're out, you know, hanging around and you look at somebody, do you, do you immediately criticize their appearance and talk under your breath? Little, little cuts, little digs, little comments that you think you're better than they are? Or you think they're better than you? <laughs> Either way. You know? Is your outside persona more important than your internal sense of self? You know? You know, when we, um, when we experience the love of Jesus, two guys go to the temple. And the first one's there in the lineup. And he looks down and he goes, I am so glad I'm not like that nasty person there and that nasty person and, and that critical mindset. I'm so glad I'm not like that. And I fast and I'm disciplined. I have my quiet time every day and all this stuff. And the other, other guy is so broken, he won't look, his, look at heaven. He's bowed over, he's hitting himself in the chest. And he says, the only thing I got, God, is have mercy on me. Just on this pile of a mess of a man that I am, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, who leaves the temple justified? The one that's broken. Now, when we have that kind of mercy, we receive it and experience that kind of love. 
How do we treat people? Answer. If the love of God has radically been realized inside of us, then how do we treat people? Exactly the same way. Okay. Makes sense? If you have a damaged view of self, you're going to justify abusing people. If the love of God has been realized inside of you in a deep and radical way, and you know mercy, and you know grace, and you know the fruit of the Spirit and the peace that only the Holy Spirit gives, then you now have the basis to relate to people in the same way that He related to you. And wow, now we're walking out the grace of God. And that is absolutely beautiful. So, all right. It's going to be a deep challenge. And from this, here's where we're going with Christ's esteem. We are going to learn what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And what that would look like. It's going to be critically important. I want to pray over you for God's grace and favor. Um, Father, thank you for the love and the grace that you give. Thank you that you are exclusively worthy of glory. You're worthy of the deepest devotion of our hearts. Thank you for this grace. Abba Father, I ask that we could answer the question accurately. Who do people say that I am? That we could actually get it right about who you are. Please. Lord, give us hearts that are soft and tender. And not hearts that seek to justify ourselves in the sight of people. Please. Thank you so much for your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.